If you have a Bible, open to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, like Brian said, we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Judges. And we're going to look this morning at a relatively unknown um, judge, uh, a guy named Jephthah. He's not nearly as common as like a Gideon or a Samson, but we'll, we'll be there. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you so you can follow along. But let's pray uh, before we open God's word and just ask him really to be the one who teaches us this morning. Father God, we love you. And just like Ben said, God, there is um, only one name that we will be praising through all of eternity, the name of our King Jesus. And Jesus, we come right now um, only to make much of you. This next moment is, a, is not about any other name except for yours. And so, God, I just pray that by your spirit you would eliminate distractions in this room. God, I pray that I would be controlled by your spirit. Um, God, we do want to live lives that make much of you. And for us to even know how to do that, we have to know more about you. And God, that's why I thank you for your word, which allows us to know you. And God, I just pray that in the, in the next few moments here, God, that as we open up um, your word, God, that you would teach us and allow us to see what you want us to see. God, allow us to hear what you want us to hear. Um, God, I love you. And Jesus, this is, again, all for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I heard um, one pastor talk about uh, Jephthah, the judge we're going to look at today, uh, and his faith like it was hot dog faith. And hot dogs, in case you're unaware, are made up of various and asunder ingredients. Um, if you like to eat hot dogs, try not to listen to this next part. Um, if you don't eat hot dogs, we realize that you are better than those of us who do. Um, but now's not the time for you to try to make a point. Um, but in a hot dog, you will find mechanically separated chicken, pork, beef, maybe even turkey. And those uh, meats are turned into a paste through a process called advanced meat recovery. Mmm. Other ingredients in a hot dog include corn syrup, sodium phosphate, sodium nitrate, maltodextrin. Uh, there was one study that found in some hot dogs uh, traces of human DNA. Ale. Uh, now, to be fair, it was only about 2%, um, but I'm not sure what your threshold for human DNA is in food. Um, this is not news to hot dog eaters because uh, people um, for years have been telling us that hot dogs are bad for us, and by people, I mean the entire medical community. Um, but what's remarkable to me is that it really doesn't phase us, right? So on the 4th of July alone in this country, we eat 150 million hot dogs. Yeah. Now, if you've been waiting up here and you've been wanting someone to stand up and speak out against processed meat, you need to settle down because today is not that day. I only bring up hot dogs um, because many Americans build their faith like a cheap hot dog. They'll take a little bit from the Bible, they'll take a little bit from Oprah, they'll take a little bit from Dr. Phil, they'll take a little bit from this book or a little bit from this movie or this blog or this Facebook post, sadly, um, and they just kind of make a combination of what faith is. And they're really okay with allowing multiple voices or opinions or practices or religions or ideals or behaviors or, or thoughts into their lives and into their hearts and into their minds as long as it provides for them the, the, the satisfaction or the happiness that we so desperately crave. And it's more than simply bad for you. It's spiritually toxic. And this is where we find the people of Israel and our next judge, Jephthah, in our text. He's got a little bit of faith from the one true God and a little bit of other things from pagan gods that are all kind of mixed in there. So um, Judges chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 6. 
It says this, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you've been tracking with us, you see this is a really common start um, to when we find the people of Israel. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. There's seven different types of gods there in that verse 6. They have completely abandoned God, verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the Ammonites, in verse 8, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So again, the familiar pattern, people of God, they serve false gods, and they end up in slavery. But the author is going to throw in a little twist here because the Israelites actually began to cry out to the very gods that have enslaved them. So the Ammonites are the ones that have enslaved them, and the gods of the Ammonites are the ones they cry out to for rescue. And here's a principle that we learn early on in this chapter. It's not just that your idolatry leads to enslavement. It's that your enslavement usually leads you to more and more idolatry. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. I'll feel that I have value. If I can have that, then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that relationship, but I think the word that fits best is the word worship. So idolatry is idol worship. Idols enslave you, meaning that you can never be happy or fulfilled or satisfied until you have whatever that thing is, and you'll do whatever it takes to have it. That's the definition of slavery. Something rules over you. Whenever it speaks to you, you do whatever it says. And when you do get it, you never feel like you have enough of it, and you're always anxious about losing it, and you begin to make destructive choices just so you can hold on to it or so that you can get more of it. And when sin enslaves you, we often look to the very things that put us in slavery in the first place. And we think, if I just try harder, if I just pursue more, if I just go after these same idols, eventually they will deliver me. There, there's a philosopher, his name's William James. He's not a, he's not a Christian philosopher. But he, he says this about the idol of success. He says, no matter what you give to her, she always demands more. On the altar of success... We sacrifice our families, our integrity, our health, our lives, and the idol never stops demanding more. We we see our problem not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 probably gives us the clearest description of this. This is God talking. He says this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. These are the two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, God says, that's who I am. And they've hewed out the second evil. They've hewed out for themselves these cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, in those days, water was a precious commodity. And so what you would do is you would dig down deep until you found a, a, a natural underground spring. This would be living water. It would be constantly moving, constantly fresh. And God says, that's me. 
But then God says, you forsook me and you were parched, so you began to dig these cisterns. And cisterns were essentially these big holes that they would dig in the desert to catch rainwater. But they were never any good because they would fill with water, but they would leak and then they would turn to, to mud. And God says, you left me and you dug cistern after cistern after cistern. And you went deeper and deeper and deeper trying to get enough water to satisfy your soul. And it was never enough. And God says, I am the only place where you will find that fulfillment and find that satisfaction. What you ultimately want is only found in me. Judges chapter 10, look at verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Have I not saved you in the past? And the Sidians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. God says, look at, look at the salvation that I have brought you in the past. Verse 14 Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. For the first time in the book of Judges, God says no. You see, it's one thing for a wayward son who comes home in true repentance. God always receives them. But, but, but imagine a wife who has been unfaithful time and time and time and time again. And then she is caught once again in the act of adultery. But she pleads with her husband for the security and the provision that he can provide only until she can find the next person to have an affair with. That's a totally different situation. And God, like us, sees their heart. They, they don't want God for God. They're just in pain. In other words, they're really sorry for the consequences of their sin, but they're not really sorry for the sin. Tim's talked about this a ton in here, but real repentance is a sorrow and a brokenness over my sin, not just the consequences of my sin. It's a sorrow and a brokenness over even the, the motivation or the heart beneath my idolatry, not just a desire for me to modify my behavior. There's a difference between using God and worshiping God. Tim Keller is a pastor and an author. He says this about this section. He says, it's possible to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. And that's what they're doing. They're treating God as if he was one of their idols. They're trying to push the right buttons and make the right sacrifices in order to get him to exert his power for them. Idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery and slavery to idolatry. And so God says to the person who worships money, he says, if you want to live for money instead of me, then money will rule your life. It'll control your heart and control your emotions. If you want to live for popularity, you want to live for recognition instead of me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. God says, if you want another God besides me, just go ahead and let's see how merciful it is to you. Let's see how effective it is in saving you and guiding you and enlightening you. Verse 15 in chapter 10. And the people of Israel said to Lord, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So they seem to get it here because in verse 10, what they say is, we want peace from you. But here they say, we want peace with you, even if it means we still have trouble. Of course, they would rather not have trouble. But what they're saying is that, God, we want you no matter what. And that's really the essential part. 
for the people of God to say, God, in times of trouble or in times of prosperity, it doesn't matter because we want you above all else. The NIV in, in verse 16 says something I think is really interesting. It, it says that the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer. It, it, it shows you how God feels about his people hurting, that their pain is painful to him. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now we're introduced to Jephthah, who's our judge we're going to look at in the rest of our time together. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Commentators will say that Jephthah was actually sued for his in- inheritance um, by his, his half-brothers there. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. So Israel's in trouble again. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah, this mighty warrior, from the land of Tob. So you've got our judge, Jephthah. He's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. He's driven out from his home, probably at a young age, by his half-brothers. And then once he's in the wilderness, he kind of attracts this band of outlaws. So he becomes kind of like this underworld crime boss guy, kind of like a, like a pirate kind of guy. He's an outcast from a broken home. Verse 6, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, uh, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? It's interesting. Jephthah responds the exact same way that God does when the people come to him. Verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they, they finally say, okay, look, you come back and you can be the boss. When, when they first go to him, the, the language there in, in verse 6, when they first go to him, they say, hey, why don't you come and be like a commander? Like they were trying to get him uh, on the cheap, hire him as a military commander. And Jephthah is a pretty shrewd negotiator. And he says, um, hey, haters, you were hating. And now you're coming back? And he says, I'll come back if you reinstate me. I'll come back as the head. That means I want my inheritance back. I want my position back. And they say, okay, fine, whatever. And they really want Jephthah. He is their kind of guy because the elders know, the elders of Gilead know about Jephthah, that he's a shrewd negotiator, that he's uh, willing to do whatever it takes to win or whatever it takes to kind of fulfill the purposes that that they want. So they say, okay, fine, whatever you want. So Jephthah takes his talents back to Gilead. And he tries to then negotiate with the Ammonites. So he's a, he's a shrewd negotiator. He tries this kind of diplomatic uh, response first to the Ammonites. And he says to the king of the Ammonites, he says, hey, you know, what's going on? Why is there beef? What is this uh, kind of tension that we have? Um, and the Ammonites said, well, look, you took our land. So now we're going to fight you so we can get our land back. And so Jephthah has this kind of moment of reasoning with them in the text. Um, first, he gives this historical reason. He says, actually... Um, the land we took was the um, 
um, Amorites, not the Ammonites. Um, and so we cannot give back to you what was never yours in the first place. Then he kind of has this uh, type of theological response to the king. And he says, listen, when we uh, took that land, it was because Yahweh, our God, won for us a decisive victory over King Sion or the Amorites. Uh, and surely, if your God, uh, Chemish, it is, uh, Ammonite God, Chemish, if he had done that for you, you uh, would understand that you have to have that, that land. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. In fact, if you're kind of listening, you're like, okay, I understand the reasoning there. But it's a big deal because what Jephthah is doing here is what Jephthah always does. He begins to blend these worldviews and religions and his reasoning, and he makes a serious theological mistake. And he says, look, our God, Yahweh, is just like your God. And the way that we worship our God is just like the way that you worship your God. And the things that our God does for us is just like what your God does. So really, there isn't that big of a difference. Don't you see how we're really all the same? We really believe the same thing. Yahweh is like your God. This is a fatal flaw in Jephthah's thinking. It's a fatal flaw often in our thinking. But this is the kind of thinking that gets Jephthah into serious trouble later on. And then later, he, next, he tries to give some kind of legal precedent. He says, look, your ancestors after. The king of Moab didn't come after us for this, and so why should you do it now? So a pretty convincing argument, but not to the Ammonite king. He doesn't buy it. So now Jephthah has to negotiate again, but this time with God, because he knows that war is inevitable. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 30. Listen to what uh, Jephthah says here. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you'll give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands. It's interesting to kind of notice the decline of Jephthah's arguments. Uh, with the Gileads, he gets what he wants. With the Ammonites, he gets shut down. But with God, he, in, when he makes this vow, he's met with complete silence, indicating that God totally disregards Jephthah's vow. Because God knows that his vow is rash, it's manipulative. He tries to exert control over God the same way that the pagans did with their gods, and it just ends tragically. Look at verse 34 in chapter 11. Jephthah came home, came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to whatever has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And so she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. 
Some commentators will try to soften this story up a little bit, and they'll say, well, uh, he really didn't think that it was going to be a person coming out of the house. He, he thought it was going to be an animal, but uh, in that time, it probably was unlikely that an animal was living in the, in the house, um, plus the language that he uses when he says, I'll greet whatever comes out was uh, connotated a human interaction. Um, other commentators will say, well, he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter. He didn't actually burn her alive. Uh, he just made her be a virgin for the rest of her life, but um, it it doesn't make any sense because they have a two-month hiatus. So what would he do with that two-month hiatus? And plus the text confirms that he did what he said that he would do. So once again, Jephthah has turned following God into this game of politics. And what he spoke out of his ignorance, his daughter paid for out of her innocence. Unfortunately for Jephthah, trouble hasn't ended, so he's got child sacrifice on his hands, and now in chapter 12, um, he's on the doorstep of genocide. Verse 1, the men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We wanted to fight. How come you didn't invite us with you? And they say, we will burn your house over you with fire. Very interesting. The fate that he uh, just kind of enacted on his daughter is now being threatened to him. He said, man, we're going to we're going to burn it down with you or in it. Um, then Jephthah gathered all the men, verse 4, um, all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because he said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, no, they said to him, say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So essentially what's happened, um, people in different parts of the country said things or pronounced things differently. So it'd be like in the south, you say, get in the car, and the Boston, get in the car, right? So that's how they were trying to figure out like who was from where. And if they couldn't say the SH sound, then they killed him. Okay. We've got like 20 minutes to try to see, okay, what does this mean for us? So we're going full throttle. Um, two questions. What does this have to do with us? And then what can we learn from it? So that first question, what does this have to do with us? Let's consider a couple things. First, why did Jephthah even make that vow? Why did he even do that? Jephthah was a guy who was desensitized to violence. Remember his upbringing? Remember the time that he spent in the wilderness? He, 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 it was the way his world operated. It was the way that um, the world around him operated. And because the culture around Jephthah was so violent, he let that worldly violence come in and just live right alongside his other true beliefs. Human life in those days was, was cheap in compared to winning a victory or, 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 or dominance or conquering. And it, it, we look at that and and said, well, that just is unspeakable to us. Um, but that's just because violence is no longer our idol of choice. Because we make similar excesses with our idols and we don't even bat an eye. For example, a man or a woman can tear apart their family and devastate their kids because one day they discovered that the person that they married is not a person who makes them happy anymore. And so they have to leave and they have to go find somebody else or something else. And we, as a society, we just look at that and we say, well, they have to be true to themselves. They have to do whatever makes them happy they have to get whatever they rightfully deserve. Our culture idolizes romantic and sexual fulfillment to such a degree that anything you have to sacrifice it to achieve that is totally unquestioned because that is an untouchable in our society. True love gets often confused with self-love. 
If someone in our culture gets pregnant at an inconvenient time, they can eliminate a child in an abortion, which is modern-day child sacrifice. And we say, well, only she can make decisions for her life. And if it's inconvenient for her right now or if it's going to be difficult for her, if it's going to mess her life up, then by all means terminate that pregnancy because she deserves the life that she truly wants and desires. That's just the price of freedom. A man can totally neglect his wife and, and family for the sake of success and progress and wealth. And we accept it because that's just the cost of doing business. That's the way that work works. And the church is not above this at all because there are countless pastors uh, and their families who have been sacrificed because of an affair that a leader had, not with another woman, although that certainly happens, but, but he had an affair with his own prominence and his own ego and, and his own influence. He falls in love with the sound of his own voice. So before we shake our heads at Jephthah, we should realize that we have more in common with him than we think. We are probably not as advanced as a culture as we think we are. We just have different idols. Another reason that he made the vow, because this is how you would please a pagan god. If you needed a big favor from a pagan god, you had to offer a big sacrifice. You know, He obviously did not really know what God required because God outright forbids it in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, don't worship the Lord your God that way. They burn their children alive. That's not what we do. Here's what's happened. Jephthah, again, mixed all kinds of things together to make it look like faith, but it's not faith at all. Because at the foundation of faith is the conviction that God is sovereign, which means that he is in control of each and every circumstance and situation in our lives. Therefore, our, our rash vows are senseless since God is going to order all things according to his will for his glory for our greatest good. Faith makes us move, but it makes us move in a way that is fully dependent on God. And if Jephthah would have really known God, he would have known that the only sacrifice that pleases God was to submit our lives to him and his lordship in every way and in every category. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your entire life as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Jephthah didn't really know God. Second question we have to wrestle with, why did, why did Jephthah keep this vow? Because maybe we could, we could excuse him for saying something stupid in a moment of tension or anxiety. We've all, we've all done that. But why, why, did it, why did he keep it? I mean, he had two months while his daughter was gone, two months to think about it. So why did he go through with it when she came back? He kept it for the very same reason that he made it in the first place. He had no concept of the grace of God. He felt like to earn God's favor, uh, I have to do it the same way that I do with the pagan gods. I, I, I have, if I don't keep this vow, I will lose God's favor. But you see, God doesn't give favor or victory or salvation because we earn it. Never. He bore in his own body the price of our salvation. It's not by works. It's not by activity. It's by his sacrifice that we are healed. Jephthah should have never kept that vow. God never instructs his people to barter with them. He gives gifts and victories out of his grace and mercy. So instead of fulfilling this, he should have repented of thinking that he could manipulate God and even earn his favor in the, in the first place. This is the gospel. It's always been the gospel, the true story of God and his relationship with people. You and I never have to make promises or sacrifices to earn God's approval and acceptance. In fact, that might be why you're even here today. 
because you think, God, I really need you to bail me out. I really need some help. So I'll go sit through this thing for an hour and 15 minutes where I don't really understand it and I don't really get it. But I think if I go, if I think my attendance will earn me something with God, and then on the way out, I'll tip him the 23 bucks I brought with me too. But God doesn't give out his acceptance and his approval because we've earned it. My kids, my three kids, I love them because they are my kids, not because of what they do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. The only way we please God is through faith, this humble confidence that he is who he says he is. Through grace, the super abundance of God, this unmerited and undeserved favor of God in your life. You have not received of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not because you gave your daughter or anything else. It's not a negotiation that you can make with God. You can't negotiate with God. The only deal that God ever made is he said, I'll take your sin, I'll take your brokenness, I'll take your filth, and in exchange, I will give you the righteousness of my son, Jesus. I will take your death and give you life in and through him. So stop trying to make a deal with God. All right, what do we learn from this story? Four things. Four things we can learn from Jephthah's story. The first thing is we are far more influenced by our culture than we realize we are far more influenced by our culture than we realize. And Jephthah missed this. He was far more influenced by the beliefs and the narratives that were around him than he was by God's word. And we have to ask ourselves, where have we absorbed the values of our culture? What has shaped our views on success and marriage and relationship, vocation? And I'm not talking and I'm not advocating isolation, but for me, it's a question of influence. It's not that we assimilate or isolate, but that we recreate. As people of God, we move into culture and we move into society to tell a better story, to live out a better reality than the one that's propagated by the world. And the only way to do that is to be more shaped by the word of God than you are by the culture. It's not to be removed by culture. It's to be more moved and more shaped by the scriptures. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, how can a young person stay on a path of purity? By living according to your word. You keep yourself pure by living according to the word of God. If you're a parent or a grandparent here, keep putting the word of God into your children. Keep them in environments where they can be soaked in and saturated in the word of God. The saddest conversation that I have, and I have it over and over and over again, is with parents of young adults and college students who said, what happened? Our kids have totally left the church. They've totally walked away from the faith. And it always goes back to this. Were you faithful to keep the word of God? Were you faithful to put them in a context, in an environment where the word of God was taught, where people around them, not just yourself, but people, other people around them were speaking the truth of God to them. Children's ministry and student ministry in 710 is not designed to raise your children. We will not raise your children. But we will help you and come alongside you to raise your children in a way that honors God. Be more moved by the spirit, by, be more moved by the scriptures than you are by the currents of the culture. The second thing we learn is that our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. We're far more influenced by the culture than we realize, and our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. The impurity of Jephthah's faith cost a lot of people their lives, even the life of his own daughter. My idolatry as a father will devastate my children. My idolatry as a husband will devastate my wife. My idolatry as a pastor will devastate 
this church. The greatest thing that I can do for my wife and for my kids and, 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 and for this church is to live a life where I am confessing and turning from idols and, and living a life turning to a, a fully devoted life with God. For some of you, your idolatry is destroying your children. It's not only destroying your relationship with them, you are passing on a set of values that could destroy their lives. You can talk all day long about God being the most important part of your life, but if they can see from your life that money or success or anything else is the most important thing in your life, it does not matter what you say with your mouth. You are going to corrupt their soul and they'll give glory to money or success or anything else and not to God. Our idolatry has devastating effects in our state, in our country. One in three kids in America grow up in a single-parent home because most of those parents decide that their desires, their own personal desires, are more important than what was best for their family, for their kids. Thousands of children in our state, thousands of children in our state grow up without a forever home and without a forever family and sleep on the floors and offices because their parents chose an idol over them. Our idol of pornography, it might seem like a victimless sin, but the average age of a woman who enters that industry is 13. It's not just you and a screen. It's created an industry that is devastating the daughters of our country. In this country, 30 million teenagers, mostly girls but some guys, have been diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia eating disorders, which happened in part because of how highly we exalted the idol of having this perfect figure or looking a certain way and having a certain shape and size. We are not as sophisticated a society as we think we are. Idols killed Jephthah's daughter, and they are killing our children too. Your idolatry has a devastating effect on those around you. I think the third thing we learn here is that we have a really hard time believing in God's grace. We, like Jephthah, have a really hard time believing in God's grace. When we stop to preach the, this gospel to ourselves, we, our heart naturally goes back to the idea that we have to earn God's favor. It's, it's like if you've ever been out to eat with someone and they, the bill comes, you know, and they say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I'll pay for it. And then you get in a little tug of war with the black book thing, you know, and they pay for it. And you say, well, okay, well, at least let me leave the tip right? We just can't let it go. And we act like that with God. We say, well, okay, God, I realize that you've separated my sin as far as the east is from the west. And I realize that you've given me life, which I could never earn on my own. I certainly don't deserve, but would you at least let me just leave the, the tip? And I forget about this all the time. I try to make these little deals with God, like say, okay, God, I've got this little bit, this little small part of ministry to do over here. Would you, would you bless it? Because I've had a pretty terrible week. So would you just kind of, I'll make a deal with you if you'll just bless that. And, and here's what God is faithful to painfully remind me of all the time. It's not about me at all, ever. If I was a total loser puke all week or if I won the spiritual decathlon, it doesn't matter. There is a righteousness covering me that I did not earn. I certainly do not deserve. And anything that I experience good in my life and anything difficult that God works for good in my life is all because and from Jesus. You see, religions are based on different ways to motivate you, uh, either through punishment or, or through benefit. You either get the carrot or you get the stick. 
But you see, this following Jesus, this Christianity is a relationship where Jesus took the punishment and he gives us all the benefits for free. Martin Luther said, the, the law says do, but it's never done. The gospel says believe, and it's already done. The, the last thing we learn from Jephthah's story, and it's, it's what we're learning from really all these judges, it's kind of the so what in all these stories, is that we need a better judge. We need a better judge, and these all point to the ultimate judge who is Jesus. Like Jephthah, Jesus would be rejected by his brothers and driven out as an outcast. But unlike Jephthah, Jesus came running back to us when he could bear our suffering no longer. Jephthah started his delivering with negotiations, but when his negotiations broke down, he started killing. But with Jesus, in his pleading, he submitted to the will of God, and when it came to someone being killed for the salvation of God's children, he offered up his own life to save theirs. You see, Jesus never asks us to sacrifice a child because he sacrificed his life for us. Jephthah thought his extreme sacrifice earned him favor with God. But Jesus is the one and only extreme and extravagant sacrifice and the only way to access the favor of God. You see, Jephthah is failed and broken and flawed as he is like all the other judges, points us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only deliverer, the only savior, who never faltered, who never failed, who never backed down, who never stumbled. He's the only one you can trust because he is the only one that ever did exactly what is needed to save you. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That is the message of hope and life and freedom. And it's only found in one person, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your word. It is always um, a crystal clear reminder of who we are because we, like Jephthah, um, God, we are crazy about our idols. We're crazy about our idols. We're crazy about how we mix and match and make our own faith. And God, your word is crystal clear about who you are. You're a savior. You're a deliverer. You are a freedom bringer. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, his amazing grace, his constant love and faithfulness and goodness. God, your forgiveness um, for which we could get enough songs or sing enough songs. God, I pray um, this morning for the person who is in this room who feels trapped, who feels enslaved. God, either to their idol or, God, maybe even because of the idolatry of someone in their life. God, I, I pray that today would be a day of salvation and freedom. They would find it in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that as we leave here, we would be a people that do not just honor you with our lips, but, God, with our whole lives. God, I pray that today we would be a people who confess our idolatry, truly repent, and brokenness and sorrow over what our sin does and what our sin is. And God, that we would find freedom once again in you. Um, God, we love you. And again, we thank you for um, this time that you've given us with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.